All right, folks. Super duty tough work. Good morning. What up? Blueprint. Illogic. We are here. Early morning edition. No one was late this time. (laughs) All of our gear worked this time. Yes. It's going to be a good day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, quick update for all the folks at home. Y'all know we in the midst of this 90 day challenge. Mm-hmm. Fitness challenge. Yeah. We still at it, folks. Yeah. If you are participating at home, we ain't forgot. You know, we're going to start making sure we do our updates every time we do one of these before we get into the topic. Uh, as of as of this morning, I am down, I think, eight point two pounds. Nice. Nice. And, you know, which is pretty damn good. It's not as fast as the last time we did this, but right. I'll take it. Yeah. How you doing on yours? I'm doing pretty good, man. I'm down about six. Let's go. About six pounds. Let's go. You know, been um, it's been a little harder. I haven't hit the gym as um and worked out as often as I'd like. But yeah. My my diet plan is doing well. Yeah. Um, I think I'm hitting the gym probably two to three times a week. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Instead of the four to five that I was, you know. Yeah. And um, even working out at home hasn't been, it's been tired, man. Like, mm-hmm. but you get a promotion at work and they give you more work. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> I'll tell you about the jobs, man. Hey, you know. Um, but, yeah, you know, I get it. But but I have been, um, me and the wife, I mean, Tay is killing it. Like, he's, he's going to the gym five, six times a week. Damn. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so Damn. she makes, she got you she looking got bad me, over there. Yeah, she got me looking bad, you know, but hey. <laughs> You know, I'm I'm doing I'm doing pretty good. Yeah. So so the, those of you at home who are listening, uh, I can't I can't remember his, his uh, Twitter handle, but got posted yesterday. He's down like 16 so far. Yeah. yeah Which is that. encouraging, you know. So like everybody who's participating, keep it up. You know what I'm saying? We we just gonna stay consistent. If you drop a pound, half a pound a week, it's still progress. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's weeks I have where I be on the same weight for like two weeks straight. Yeah, me too. I spent two weeks on like 170.0 to 170.171, like just dancing around in there, like mm-hmm. up 0.2, down 0.2, dip into 169, back up to one. It was like, damn, can I get the hell out of here? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just was like, I'm going to keep doing the right things and hopefully it'll respond. So, you know, we getting there. Uh, everybody who's doing it, thank you for participating. We're going to definitely when we do our results show, we want to have you all. You know, either tweet us your results, call in your results or something like that. We want to talk about it when we get ready to do it. But uh, we still got a ways to go. So we encourage y'all to keep going. Yeah. Can I make one more announcement? Yes, you can, sir. Hey, um, me and Odd Nosedom mm-hmm. have vinyl okay. that has just started pre-ordering for Right to Ship. Yes. Um, new cover art. Okay. We have uh, a remix of the song Handwriting from Jell. Okay. Um, and a bonus song that wasn't on the original is on the vinyl along with the instrumentals. You can get Let's it go. Audio, audio Recon. Okay. US um, and their Bandcamp page or our respective Bandcamp pages. So go copy. It's only 100 copies available. So don't miss out. Yes. Support the movement. Support Logic. Support uh, this podcast. You know, we uh, we podcast, but we do have music as well. And uh, this music that he's talking about is fire. So please uh, go do it. Shout out to Odd Nose Dom. All our, our former Ohio slash Anacon bros, you know what I mean? Cincinnati cats mm-hmm. uh, who was there when we started our shit and they started their shit, you know, yeah. stomping around at the same time. So peace to them. So today's topic, mm-hmm. now that we've paid the bills, today's topic is one that we actually were requested to do from a loyal listener and friend of the show, DJ Paz 2 from Columbus, Ohio. Uh, shout out to Paz. He was like, hey, super duty tough work. Why don't y'all do a De La Soul episode? You know, because I know y'all would do it right. Mm. Huge compliment coming from my brother. Shout out to Paz. And, uh, you know, I don't know if I got the exact tweet. Let me see if I got the exact tweet here. But he said, uh, oh, he said, with De La Soul as a bubbling topic, I think it would be dope for the most infamous podcast, Super Duty Tough Work, to lay down 10 points 
as to why De La Soul is important to hip hop or why they have been so elite and influential in their career. I know y'all would knock it out the park. Yeah. Makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside. You know what I mean? They know. <laughs> you know, we don't, if we don't do it, we going to do it. They know, you know. Nobody's you know going to do it like we do it. <laughs> our, our, our MF Doom episode. Mm-hmm. Classic. Fire. You know what I mean? Hey, we gave Biz Markie, you know what I'm saying, a classic joint. Fire. Yeah. You know what I mean? Run the Jewels. Another Fire. classic. We don't do these uh, artist breakdown episodes very often, but when we do, we try to make sure they're thorough and we do them from a different perspective, which we haven't seen anybody else doing, which is why were these artists successful? Mm-hmm. Not, and it's not just, oh, they were dope. They had this great song. We want to break down the, the, the mechanics, the, the, the traits, if you will, the, the skills that they had that set them apart and made their music so iconic because both of us are huge fans. Mm-hmm. I have moments with De La Soul's music that like I will always remember. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm sure Logic does too. We both do. And they are one of the most influential groups on us. So we want to make sure we do them right when we do this. And so... This episode is about the genius of De La Soul. And I don't, we don't have 10 points, but I think we got nine or eight. And uh, they're all strong. And so we're going to take a break and we're going to be back. If you're, if you're a fan of De La Soul, you know, uh, hopefully the discussion uh, is just dope to you. You know, hit us in the comments on YouTube. Hit us in the comments on SoundCloud, wherever, Twitter, uh, the gram. And let us know how you feel about this episode. So we'll take a break and we'll be right back. We got you stuck off the realness. The most infamous. You heard of us. Official podcast murderers. The show comes equipped with few points to share. Grown man ideas for all those who care and want to grow. So go ahead and download every single week with a brand new episode. You're not alone in this world, cousin. So we share information and honest discussion and keep repping the culture like we supposed to. They spread gossip, but they never come closer. I can hear it inside their tone. They talk about the industry but never left their home you get laced up with bullet points and such plus empowering topics that they never would touch you can put your whole network against the team but super duty tough works the mvp most valuable podcast on mp3 priceless info but all of it's free so take these words home and think them through super duty tough work is coming at you now listening to Super Duty Tough Work with your host, Blueprint, raw and uncut, adult conversations, no shucking, no jiving, and no bullshit. Alright folks, we are back. Super Duty Tough Work, Blueprint, Logic. we're here talking about the genius of De La Soul. Rest in peace to Dave of De La Soul. Yes. Um, obviously, if you're a fan of music, uh, of De La Soul's music, you know that their music this week finally is available on streaming websites. Yeah. And that's kind of that plus the passing of Dave is, is kind of the, the onus behind this episode uh, doing it. And, you know, we are big fans of De La Soul anyway. So this is the perfect time to speak about them and their greatness. And so one of the first things we want to talk about as it relates to the genius of De La Soul is album skits. Mm. <coughs> One of the first things, and I'm going to read about this for those of you who don't have uh, my 10 traits of successful hip hop artists, you'll see there on the cover in this bottom uh, left corner. It's De La Soul right there. I put these brothers on the cover of my book because they are that, you know, influential to me And this book. Uh, I wrote it, I think it came out two years ago. Or 2020 or 2021 and there's a segment in here where I, I, I speak about their album skits I'm gonna read this and then we're gonna have a discussion about it mm-hmm. but yeah if you don't have this book the 10 traits of successful hip-hop artists uh, pick it up at waitlist.net okay but this is just talking about three feet high and rising it says three feet high and rising was innovative in many ways the first way was de la soul's use of skits prior to three feet high and rising 
The majority of rap albums followed a very predictable format. One song would finish and fade out. There would be three seconds of silence and then the next song would start. De La Soul and their producer Prince Paul changed this entirely on Three Feet High and Rising with their popularization of album skits. Songs were preceded or followed by interludes and skits that further explained the song and gave the album's concept more depth. That was the release with De La for me. It was all these things that I can't do with Stetsasonic. I'm going to allow these guys to do. Prince Paul says of the album's originality, Skits like Take It Off were so funny that it was easy to miss that it was actually lambasting all of the hip-hop fashion that they felt was cliche and were sick and tired of seeing. In that sense, it further defined what they stood for without explicitly saying it in a quote-unquote real song. Yeah. I mean, I I definitely remember that being when I first heard, um, you know, Three Feet High and Rising it really threw me off because it started out as a concept record about a game yeah. show. Right. Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. And you were just like, what happened here? Like th- I'd never heard anything like that in my life. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just like one skit. It was something that they revisited multiple times throughout the album. And there were other skits that were buried inside of the album about different things. Mm-hmm. Some super abstract, some very direct, mm-hmm. but Prior to that album, that had never been done in hip hop. No and one keep in ever, mind. This oh, is eighty nine, though. Yes, eighty nine. This is eighty nine, and they're coming with like. Was there any real concept records back then like that? You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, there the only, was some. There was I, only, some. Oh yeah, only groups I could think of maybe like Public Enemy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But not to the to the granular level that they were doing it. They were really, really, really micro with it. You know what I mean? Yep. And um, you got to think if it came out in 89, it was probably recorded in 88. Right. You know what I'm saying? 87. Um, back in that that era. So they were really, really ahead of the time to the point to where, you know, people were not exactly sure what to think of them at first. Mm-hmm. You know, but the skits alone were something that they not only just started then, they continued to use throughout their album. And I think it ended up being. Uh, one of their strengths because now, you know, now we're in an era of social media. Mm-hmm. People can, can detect or determine your personality by following you on Instagram, by following you on Twitter. You know, you follow people and you find out, oh, uh, Logic or Blueprint, they've got a good sense of humor. Mm-hmm. They post funny stuff sometimes. That didn't exist in 88, 89. Right. In 88, 89, there was no social media. There was no way to, to know a person's personality. Um, but De La Soul innovated in that they gave themselves a way to show who they were and what they stood for outside of just the rap songs. Mm-hmm. You know, and I mentioned in the book the the take it off skit, you know, take them joy that like it was funny. But then it was like, oh, they're making, you know, taking take. Just talking about all these cliche fashion things that everybody was doing in hip hop and how they weren't going to do that shit. Take it off. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And uh, I think that's that's one of the first innovations that I noticed about them. Uh, even back then, no one was doing skits and interludes the way they were. And also they even did skits during songs. Yes. Like like they would do a hook and then sometimes the beat would change and they would have like a little break and talk or say some shit and then the, the song would come back in you yes. know what i'm saying or you know they would just talk and not have a hook and that would just yes. be like a little skit in the beginning and at the end um so it's wild and also thinking about the take it off skit you know that n95 song that kendrick has uh-huh. where he's take it off you know like, like yeah. I, don't, I don't know I didn't re- i didn't even think connect those two things until i listened to three feet high again yeah, um, and I don't. I don't know. I mean, he has. To, he had to be influenced by that. Had yeah, because it's the same, the same thing. Um, and also them making whole songs skits. Yes, you know what I'm saying. Like, can you keep a secret? Yep. You know what I'm saying. Prince Paul needs a haircut. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yep. Joints were um the uh, I be blowing on Balloon Mind State. Yeah, um, you know with Maceo. Uh, the Rapidy Rap Show is like two minutes long. Like a lot of their skits are whole songs. Yes. 
You know what I mean? So they took the whole skit thing to a whole nother level and they kept doing that throughout all of their records, even I think even up through um Bionics, the Bionics yeah. records too. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the first that's a big one. And it, and like you're saying, it was it was a part of their signature sound. Um mm. and it's it's hard to for some people who are younger probably to imagine right now because you've been hearing skits on every album since you've been listening to hip hop. Right. But you got to imagine nobody was doing that right. to like, like that when they did it. And uh, it was super duper innovative and uh, uh, very original. So that's the first one skits. The second item in the genius of De La Soul is creative sampling. Yeah. By creative sampling, we are talking about a group who in 88, 89, everybody was, you know, on some James Brown shit, you know, uh, funk records, blatant soul records. De La Soul broke that mold by sampling things that no one would have ever thought. Right. If you're ever on YouTube, uh, Google Prince Paul samples children's records. Mm -hmm. He's got a, uh, there's a snippet from a documentary they were doing that they did on them right as three feet high and rising was coming out and it's him playing a drum break off a, a Mickey mouse record. And he was like, sample samples are everywhere. You would never think that there's a, a uh, something on this record to sample, but listen to this. And he plays this funky drum break that's on a, on a Mickey mouse record. And that's just one example. If you look at they sampled children's records, they sample foreign records. They sampled records and speaking in different languages. French. Mm -hmm. Like it's just all these crazy things that they would put on records. Is it the like you'd be like, what is this? <laughs> right. I don't know. But it sounds cool as shit. Uh-huh. Right? You would not know, you know, and, and their creative sampling was was a, a, a little too creative because it got them <laughs> a lot yeah, of trouble. Got, got them hit. Yeah, you know, they started sampling like the first lawsuits uh, in hip hop weren't from sampling the James Browns of the world. Nah, they were sampling the rock records and going out of out of those left field samples that no one else records no one's touching. Those artists did not appreciate sampling like that. Right. And some of those artists, you know, filed lawsuits, which led to a lot of these situations where De La Soul's music was not as available as it could have or should have been. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um. And so, but their creative sampling is just one of their strongest traits because at that time, you listen to the records and you had honestly never heard anything like it in your life. No, not at all. You know, like I think about um, my first memory of De La Soul. I had just got a little tiny boombox and I tell this story in, the, in my book and I remember going to visit my family in Cleveland. I had this little boombox and they had a little park across the street. And so you, you would go across the street and they had a radio station there. It was, it was 92 something, but they had Friday night mix shows. And I couldn't have been on more than 13, 12 or whatever I was. I was pretty young. And I remember walking across the street because some kids was playing over there and we played and then we sat and they told me which radio station because I wanted to tape the mix show to go to. As soon as we turn it here, I hear, don't, 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 don't. I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> plug one, plug two. Uh -huh. It just—I was everybody was sitting there on a the bench, like, what the fuck is this? Mm -hmm. And it was like it was very endemic of hip hop at that time. You never turned on the radio to hear the same thing. You knew you were gonna hear something different, but I didn't know it was gonna sound like that. Mm -hmm. And I was taping it, and I just kept playing that song over. And over and over because I'd never heard anybody in hip hop sample something like that, beat like that, and it sound that crazy. Mm -hmm. But that's De La Soul. Yeah, the wild thing about De La Soul, they were they were like the bomb squad, but with jazz records. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like there was always these weird little things that they would yeah. that Paul would put into the beats, but it always had this really cool groove to it, and Back then, like some of the some of the samples and drum breaks that they would use were not the you know typical four four, you know, and everything was up tempo. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Like it was it was really cool to listen to because 
just diving back into their early catalog, um, because if you're a fan like me, you probably got the folder back in the day when they released their whole catalog for free. They yep. sent it out to everybody. <laughs> yep. <laughs> when they was mad, when they was yeah. pissed off, and they sent them joints. Um, but yeah, I haven't I haven't listened to their whole um back catalog in a while. But hearing it, you know, like especially now that I'm making beats, I'm starting to hear things and understand a little more yeah. about how those things were constructed. And I'm even more amazed because sometimes I still can't figure out like what the like how did he <laughs> find that rhythm? You know what yes. I'm saying? Like, how, are those programmed drums? Is that a break? Like, what, yeah. the, what? You know what I mean? So. It's really cool to listen to now in a different perspective. And yeah, man, they were the bomb squad with jazz. It was like, you yeah. know, it's wild what the uh what the um the native tongues did for jazz records. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. As far yeah, as the that, sampling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and when I I was studying them, I was reading about how like all their parents were deep into music. Mm-hmm. So like uh, Dave's parents had a crazy music collection, mm-hmm. similar to like Q-Tips did. Right. You know what I mean? Like Q-Tips' dad was a huge, huge, huge da- uh, jazz head, which explains how Tribe sound kind of ended up being what it was. But something else I like to add about their creative sampling is like they were the first group who just was like, "It's okay to sample literally anything." Yeah, doesn't but, matter. But they also weren't afraid to sample regular shit right you know what i mean like like me myself and i Mm -hmm. you know i mean they they rhymed over it and whether they liked it or hated it that was one of their biggest songs but it was like it fit on the record right because it was like okay well you know we know you'll sample any of this dope obscure stuff but you also sample and rhyme over this shit right here this funkadelic shit Mm -hmm. and write something dope over that I think that's a big lesson to artists. It's not necessarily what I see a lot of artists do now with sampling is like they're very militant about sampling unrecognizable, unmelodic, mm-hmm. uh, obscure music just to say and then chopping it to high hell. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. I do. They take great pride in that. Mm hmm. But they fail to see that there has to be balance. Right. There's a listener on the other side. Mm-hmm. They need something to grasp onto. And sometimes there's no uh, better way to really, really make people appreciate sampling than to sample something familiar. Right. And just loop it. Just loop it. Just loop it. Sometimes if you some, see, because when I first started, I was one of those because I thought like, you know, I'm a be a purist you know what i'm saying like <laughs> i ain't gonna sample what everybody else is sampling i'm gonna chop yeah. the shit out of everything and yeah. you know when i and a lot of my early beats were real weird and obscure sounding didn't have no groove didn't yes. have no none of that yeah and now it's like yo if it works it works you know what i'm saying like i'm looking for the groove i'm yes. looking for you know even when i'm chopping stuff i still need those pieces to have a groove to them you yep. know what i mean so yeah, I, I was I was one of those dudes. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm not no more. You know, I still good, I still good. like the obscure shit, but yeah. you know. Yeah, but you can't I, be afraid of like using something dope just because it might be a little more known yeah. than something that isn't. You know what I mean? It's like the, the end of the day we're here to make dope music. Right. De La Soul never lost sight of that. Right. From the obscure records to the more popular records to not sampling at all, their music was very melodic very catchy you know what i mean like you could hum along with all their best songs the melody on them and and that's something that is a byproduct of their creative sampling that's number two number three part of the genius of de la soul is the rhyme patterns Mm. this is is where me and the logic just like you know Mm. we notice these things Mm. i'm gonna read an excerpt of my book real quick uh, the 10 traits where I talk about this because this is something that uh, they innovated in a huge way. And uh, hold on. I'll read this quote. This quote says the second innovation of three feet high and rising was the style of rhyme that rappers Pasa Noose and Trugoy employed while their peers predictably, predictably rhymed words at the end of every bar songs like plug tuning featured them rhyming every other bar. 
Sometimes they would rhyme within the bar, but not at the end of it. Other mm-hmm. times they wouldn't rhyme at all, prioritizing that what needed to be said, prioritizing what needed to be said above the unspoken rules of rhyming every bar. Yeah. For example, answering any other service, prerogative pays positively, I'm acquitted. Enemies publicly shame my utility after the battles they admit that I'm with it. Mm-hmm. Simply smooth will move. Vinyl like glue, transistors all never more shown with like wind vocal flow brings it all down to ruins due to a clue of a naughty noise called plug tuning. Mm. When I heard that, my mind was like, dog. <laughs> Yo, if you are a fan of me, of, of mine, you you probably have heard me use this pattern before. Yeah. Every and other the re- bar joint. Yeah. And the reason is because of De La Soul. When yes. I heard that, because I had never heard anybody rhyme like that. Mm-hmm. And it was also, and I think also they did it probably too, because a lot of their songs were really fast. Yes. You know what yes. I'm saying? So it worked in the speed of the song as well as, you know, just doing something different. And something else that um, I noticed with with their rhyme patterns is that in a lot of their, um, especially their earlier songs, they both rhymed in the same pattern. Yes. Throughout the song. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like you write your verse and do whatever and I'll write my verse and do whatever. Like yep. they were in sync throughout the song. You know, if if Paz did that every other bar rhyme, so did Trugoy. Yes. If, you know, if 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 they had these, you know, obscure lines that dropped in certain places, a lot of times in their verses, those weird rhymes dropped in the same weird places. Yeah. Like it was, you know, it was really interesting. Like oodles of O's, uh, peas, porridge, uh, past the plugs. Yes. Um, you know what I'm saying? Magic number. A lot of their songs, you know, mm-hmm. did that. And they kind of got away from that more in, um, on stakes is high. Yeah. You know, especially, um, yes. but balloon mind state was a little bit more foreshadowing that as well. But I am, I be is probably my fate. One of my favorite songs of theirs. And, Yes. Them using, you know, that same rhyme scheme throughout the song together is beautiful, beautiful to watch. Yeah. Yeah. It always made me look at them more as like poets than just MCs. Mm-hmm. Because if you were to take that rhyme, when you listen to it, it can throw you off because our minds are trained to listen to every the rhyme at the end of the bar. Right. You know, the rhyme within the bar or whatever. But they were delaying the rhyme going a bar two bars without picking it up sometimes even later often like yep. that you know what i mean and it just really made me look think like for the first time you could write these rhymes on paper and they will be just as dope as them being said which i don't think is a quality a lot of hip-hop has yeah you know a lot of rhymes sound great when you say them but if you write them on paper they don't really they don't translate. They don't slap like that. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> They'll translate. Daylight was one of those groups where their rhymes were just as good as on paper as they were being said with charisma and delivery and all that other shit. Which, yeah. you know, it's good. And, and Trugoy was good for not rhyming. Yes. <laughs> he was good for just letting yeah. the words speak for themselves and yeah. be rhythmic without rhyming. And yep. that's one of the things, honestly, it took me a couple albums to really appreciate about him mm-hmm. because Pasta Noose has always shined. Yes. And Pasta Noose is like in my top three rappers of all time because yeah. um, he's just so innovative with his own personal rhyme patterns. But I didn't really under I didn't really appreciate Trugoy till Balloon. Yeah. And then Stakes is High. He kind of they were even yeah Yeah, oh he he destroyed that that record um (laughs) but then after you know after getting deeper into balloon and going back and listening to three feet high listening to dead um he was always that good it was just he was a lot more weird than pause was Mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying his style was way more different than pauses was and it was a little different to get it was harder to get into him back then because he wasn't rhyming all the time Mm-hmm. You know, except for the songs where they rhyme together. But I appreciated his genius once, you know, and Balloon, it was like, oh, OK, I was yes. mis- I was sleeping. I was sleeping. Yeah. I was yeah, sleeping he, on Dave. He got a. it's almost like what you make what you describe makes me think that they kind of had two different directions in terms of how they were writing. Like. Mm-hmm. Dave started out abstract. 
got more and more direct. Mm -hmm. Pause started out more direct and got a little more abstract as time went on. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like balloon mind state is like that intersection. But by the time you get to uh, stakes is high, Dave is direct as a motherfucker. He's right. <laughs> He's in your face. You know right. What I mean? Right. <laughs> well, he, he started out abstract. They both were yeah. on this chart. They were going two different directions. And then mm-hmm. they both kind of got there at the same time. But they started out two different directions. It's kind of wild, you know, yeah. now that you say yeah. that makes me see it. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's rhyme patterns. That's number three. And uh, we'll take a break and we'll be right back. This is your weekly reminder that we have two books that you, as a listener or watcher of this podcast, need to absolutely own. The first is The Ten Traits of Successful Hip Hop Artists, and the second is The Social Media Cheat Code. Both of these books were released within the last year. The Ten Traits of Successful Hip Hop Artists is a book where I go through the stories and explain the traits that uh, are behind the success of some of the biggest names in hip hop today. Um, The book has got nothing but amazing feedback. And if you are an artist, business person, whatever you do, if you would like to be inspired and would like to learn more about hip hop along the way and also see some some reinforcement of the concepts that we talk about on this podcast, the 10 traits of successful hip hop is for you. Second book is the social media cheat code. That is for everyone who listens to this podcast who does not uh, consider themselves an expert or really good at social media. It's not for super experienced people. It's actually for people who are on social media, but are not getting the results you need. So what we did is I broke down like 12 or 13 strategies that I use all the time that actually work really well for me. I put it into book. I gave you examples and I tell you how to implement it. That's a book you absolutely need as a listener to this podcast, watcher this podcast. If you're on YouTube, supporting these books actually goes a long way towards supporting the podcast. So uh, to support the show, if you like what we do, obviously we don't necessarily get paid to do this shit. So support the products and services that we create. And these two books are a big part of that. We appreciate your support and uh, back to the show. All right, folks, we back. Super duty, tough work. We're talking about the genius of De La Soul. If you are a fan of hip hop, fan of De La Soul, um, we know everybody's talking about De La Soul right now. What we do on this podcast, we try to do it a little differently. We try not to just talk about their music. We try to talk about the things that made them successful behind the music, because these are things that we think that as fellow artists, you can learn from. Because um, it's hard to just be like, oh, yeah, they're dope. The rhyme's dope. You know what I mean? But when we break it down like this, we hope that you will kind of take some of these bullet points with you and see how you can apply them to what you do and also get a greater appreciation for the artists themselves. Right. That said, we are on number four. Part of the genius of De La Soul, and that is their fashion. Their look. And I'm going to read a couple excerpts from a book where I speak about this. And then we're going to talk about it a little bit more. All right. Second. All right. So this is this is about uh, De La Soul going to meet with Tommy Boy Records. Once the demos were cleaned up, it was only a matter of time before labels heard the same thing that Prince Paul heard. I thought they were pretty fantastic. And I had a meeting with them says former president of Tommy Boy Records, Monica Lynch. They came in. They said, my name is Pazda Noose, which is Sop Sound backwards. My name is Trugoy, which is yogurt spelled backwards. And then Maceo, which was the most normal of the bunch. And they had these unusual haircuts and their style was completely anti-ethical to the prevailing aesthetic of hip hop at the time, which was much more driven by black leather and gold chains and such. They were definitely like these introverted, nerdy guys that were very cool. Lynch had never seen or heard anything like them and presented their music to the owner of the label, Tom Silverman. Silverman was immediately blown away by the group's originality. When I heard De La Soul for the first time, I remember saying, this is going to do nothing or it's going to be really big. Uh, Silverman says, because when you listen to it, it was so bizarre compared to anything out. And whether it did something or didn't do did something or didn't do something, we loved it and we thought it was important that it came out. 
Despite being unsure about how the public would respond to the group, Tommy Boy Records immediately signed De La Soul to their first rec- recording contract. There's another late uh, excerpt I'm going to read about just like uh, their appearance. In 1989, most hip hop artists had a similar look. Leather pants, designer sweatsuits, fat gold chains were the standard. De La Soul immediately stood out among their peers because they rejected gold chains and instead wore African Afrocentric medallions. They would wear these sequence outfits. The Gumby haircut, Mace says. We looked different from everybody who was rocking Kangos or whatever. We looked crazy. Even in the Posse Cut Buddy, their Native Tongues crew proudly declared De La Soul from the soul. Black medallions, no gold. Instead of wearing designer sweatsuits, they dressed like hippies and wore tie-dyed colors. Their Afrocentric hippie look was the complete opposite of their peers and immediately put them in their own category. While most rappers rhyme from the perspective of being the cool kid in school, De La Soul did the complete opposite. They were the weird black nerds who never quite fit in, yet still managed to be the cool kids. It was This was most evident with their smash single, Me, Myself, and I, a song that was okay was that was about being okay with being weird. Even the song's music video showed them being bullied and ridiculed by the cool rappers in school. At a time when most rappers made the listener want to be someone else, three feet high and riser and rising made the listener want to be themselves. Yes. I I can um I can attest to this because I was that <laughs> weird. I was that weird kid. Like seeing the seeing the me myself and I video made me feel like I was okay. Yeah. yeah. You know what I'm saying? Made me feel like it's all right to be the weird dude. It's all right to listen to, you know, um weird shit you know what i'm saying like i I didn't listen to everything that everybody else listened to i didn't want to you know i was listening to to whom it may concern when i was in middle school you know what i'm saying like and everybody was listening to snoop i like snoop (laughs) you know what i'm saying but i was looking for Shafir's records and looking for all balls don't bounce and ac alone and all that and everybody else is bumping you know the normal stuff the nas and you know which i love that stuff too but i was i was different i was weird and daylight made me feel okay about that and finding other rappers yeah. that were weird like me i was yeah. like okay i can do this you know i can i can be me and it's okay yeah to be me you know i didn't feel ashamed to be me yeah that's dope yeah i think uh, to, to truly truly appreciate it you got to really look at the aesthetic at a time you know yeah and what now rappers can dress however they want right now you know, mm-hmm. you could put on anything. You could, I mean, look from the Andre 3000s to whoever. No one says shit now. And that's because of De La Soul. Right. That's because De La Soul proved that it, we don't have to go along with whatever the prevailing fashion thing is that y'all are doing. That's not us. That's not who we are. We didn't grow up with that experience. We didn't grow up dressing like that. We're not going to put on no fucking gold chains and kangos and all this shit and try to look like LL or run DMC just because that's what's hot, which is what mm-hmm. everybody else was doing. Yeah. Yeah. And they did it their own way. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, uh, that's something that, I mean, you could hear it at the time from the time they walked into the labels to the, to the time everyone saw them, it was just like, what the fuck is this? Mm-hmm. And to their music, it wasn't just, we got this dope music. The music was a reflection of who they were. Right. Some people think that originality is some old, it's math. Well, if I just sample this and I just do that, then I'm original. Nah, originality comes from being an original person. Yeah. Seeing the world differently. And I think that was De La Soul's gift. You know? Yeah. That was, I mean, that was all in native tongues. I mean, yeah. Shoot. When you look at any of the videos that Tribe did from, you know, Instinctive Travels, mm-hmm. they were dressed weird. Jungle Brothers dressed different, you know, dashikis yeah. and, yeah. you know, like, um, they we call them hammer pants now, but they yeah. had you know what I'm saying like <laughs> yeah. the the pants and the you know the uh, the Asian um the the Chinese hats like the the, yeah. uh, the big joints like yeah, Q Tip uh, always was rocking those. You know they just look different. Yeah. You know what I'm saying, and it was like, oh, we can do this. All right, mm-hmm. you know the weird kids can win. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> they lost so winning was a win for the weird rappers. Yeah, you know what I mean? Because, yeah, prior to that, you didn't really see as much of that. You know, it wasn't it wasn't successful. You know, you had mm-hmm. to look a certain way to be successful. And uh, De La Soul 
directly, indirectly paved the way for pretty much what all of us do now or had the opportunity to do. Right. And fashion's a part of it. So that's number four. Number five thing behind the genius of De La Soul is their perspective. By that, I mean a perspective they rhyme from. I'm going to read another excerpt of his book because, you know, this is very important to understand what De La Soul was doing and the environment at the time. One second, let me find this. John. Okay, here's an excerpt. It says, the perspective they rhymed from was also unique. Although hip hop had firmly established itself as a voice for the inner city black youth, the voices of black kids from the suburbs had never been heard prior to De La Soul. Being here made us just see a different light, says rapper True Goy. I mean, people in the Bronx might have seen crime on an everyday basis, might have seen problems in the community on an everyday basis. I think just being out here just basically opened up our minds. It wasn't cluttered with all the noise and all the crime and all the things that I guess every other rapper is talking about. De La Soul wasn't from the hood and they weren't acting as if they were. They were just teenagers who were having fun, making great music and being themselves. And that was enough. Three Feet High and Rising was a stage for us, True Goy says, being kids, having a good time, out of high school, being jerks, being silly. The result was an album that never got stuck in one place for too long, moving freely from topic to topic without ever sounding too contrived. Mm. Nice. Yeah, that's something that I think um, definitely goes overlooked with them. Because even now, a lot of people have to kind of uh, have to deal with that. You know, we still got rappers out there risking their safety just to try to keep it real and shit. Yeah. You know, try to trying to prove that they're hard or they're tough to a crowd who really don't even have their best interest in mind. And you try keeping it real, but you should try keeping it right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well done. Quote from my man Positive News. Well know? done, Elijah. Yeah. <laughs> it's true though. You know what I mean? It's like even back then, it wasn't cool to go against the grain and be like, look, I don't know shit about that. Right. Yeah. I'm not a gangster. <laughs> I'm not going to rhyme about that. Yeah. I, this is what I know. This is how I came up. I'm going to be me. Mm-hmm. Everybody loved them for that. Now, and it's a shame that even all these years later, a lot of artists don't get that, that it's okay to be you. It's okay like, there's nothing wrong with, with growing up in the suburbs and having two parents. Yeah, man, because the average motherfucker is not a gangster. No. The average dude is not a G. The average dude won't just punch somebody in the face <laughs> or shoot somebody or sell drugs. Like, the average person is not that. And I think that's really what why they resonated with people. Because yeah. they seemed more relatable at yeah. the time. I couldn't relate to N.W.A. Right, right. You know right. what I'm saying? I couldn't relate to Spice One. I couldn't relate to, you know, those kind of even, you know, like I, I couldn't relate to the gangsters in New York either. I couldn't relate yeah. to that. I like the music, mm-hmm. but I could relate to them a lot more. I could relate to LONS when they came out. I could yes. relate to, you know, a lot of the other people that came out, the tribes and, you know, Queen Latifah's and MC. Like, I could relate to that kind of stuff a little more. Yeah. And most people could, too, you know. Yeah, I mean, statistically, like you're saying, I mean, are there more uh, gangsters in the world or are there more regular people in the world? I'm I'm inclined to believe it's more regular people who are weird and have a problem fitting in than there are gangsters out here doing crime and turn around and and recording rap records. Right. I think the true gangsters in rap are probably on some one percent shit. Yeah. You know, just like anywhere else. But you probably got a good 20 to 40 percent of people are weird. You know what I mean? It's less than that. It's like, it's some weird people out there or just don't fit in. Right. Or not naturally like extroverts and just walk in and it can blend in with any crowd. The average person is not like that. They're to themselves. They have interests, hobbies. They're great people. They're just not like, you know, uh, super outgoing. But they're okay with who they are. Yeah. De La Soul spoke to those people and, and that perspective prior to them 
because they are one of the first groups out of Long Islanders. They're they're Long Island legends. You know what I mean? Yes. They're not from the Bronx. They're not from Harlem. They were not from these areas. They're not from Brooklyn. And it was okay. Mm-hmm. It was okay. Um, that's the big thing that I, I took away from them, and I and I hope that other people take that away because it's not as I said mentioned earlier. They didn't try to be anything. They just embraced who they were. And their art and music was a reflection of that. It wasn't a marketing scheme. You know, they didn't. You you can't rhyme about that 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 kind of stuff if you don't have a certain freedom about you. And like he said, we didn't have to worry about certain things every day. You know what I mean? Out in the suburbs of Long Island, they wasn't dealing with the same pressure that other kids were. So they just rhymed about what they knew, and it was fresh. You know, that is number five. Number six thing behind the genius of De La Soul, which I think has been uh, a trait throughout all their albums, is their anti-materialism. It came out in many ways, you know, and what you find out is like, even within their music, sometimes you could miss the deeper messages because it was so poetic at the beginning of their career. But as we mentioned, as their career went on, by the time they got to like Balloon Mind State, they were getting a lot more direct about everything. And then by the time they got to stakes as high, they was just calling the industry out blatantly. <laughs> yeah, straight up. It was not even poetic. They was just saying it. <laughs> right, right, right. Sick of bitches, sick of asses. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sick of talking about blood sister of Versace glasses. Yeah, sick of Versace glasses. <laughs> Sick of name brand clothes. Yep. Straight <laughs> he never would have wrote that rhyme on on uh, three feet. Right. De La Soul. He wouldn't have said it like that. Mm-hmm. On those those songs, it was disguised. Like, you know what right. I'm saying? Take it off. 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 <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> just take it off. Take that can't go off. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was funny. They laughed about it. Like, like by the time they got to uh stay excited, look, we tired of telling y'all. Y'all clearly don't hear it behind all this poetic and funny shit we saying. Right, right, right. You know what I mean? But the theme was always like, yo, why do we have to praise all this material stuff in hip hop? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you know, why 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 are we not? And they were they were men of faith as well. You know, you listen to their songs, you know, it's they definitely are talking about like, you know. Like not being on that, there are spiritual things that are much more important than this material shit, and they were blessed, yeah, to see it all, and they still were not with it. They were not with a lot of the the excess you see in the industry, and that was always done at a time for them where the industry was at its most excessive, right? Because mm-hmm. you had the gold chain era. They came in during that anti all of that. Years later, Stakes is High came out right at, at, at Bad Boy's peak. Mm-hmm. Like Bad Boy changed and, and created commercial club rap. Yep. What we know of commercial rap, club rap, did not exist prior to Bad Boy. Stakes is High was one of the hardest rap records to come out because it took that shit on head on. Mm-hmm. And a lot, and it did it at a time when a lot of rappers were afraid to do it. Dudes was re- willing to put on a shiny suit. They wanted to collab with Puffy and them. Mm-hmm. Live was like, nah, man. Nah. Yeah, and if you look at 91 when Dead came out, that was like the spark of gangster rap. Yep. You know, because that was the year yep. uh, Niggas for Life came out, I believe, um, which was NWA. Um, yep. I think Pac's first record came out, I want to say. Um, it was a lot of gangster rap that really hit when yeah. Dead hit. And the concept of that record and them coming out saying like, you know, we talk about all this flower stuff, but we ain't no punks. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Because was, Cats was trying to punk them yeah, at the they, time. Yep. You know, and then going to Balloon Mind State, just the title alone, you know what I'm saying, was talking about the anti-materialism and the industry and just the, you know, it might blow up, but it won't go pop. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like having songs like Ego Trippin', having songs yep. like I Am I Be, having those in focus you know in focus you know in the woods all of those songs they were talking about things that meant something at the time mm-hmm. that was so anti what the industry was promoting yes and they've always done that they've always stood in opposition of what's been popular and what to them was endangering our people 
you know, yes. putting our people in at a, at a disadvantage. So, you know, they've they've always been activists on the mic without, you know, without waving a flag or yes. pumping their fist, you know, yep. in your face. They've always yes. been on that side of activism, just doing it over some cool beats and with some cool rhymes, you know yeah. what I'm saying? But they've always had a deeper meaning and purpose in everything that they've done on every record, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the point you bring up about uh, people thinking they were soft after three feet high and rising because mm-hmm. they were coming out looking different with the peace signs and and looking like hippies and shit. People thought they were soft, but they got a rep for being willing to squab. Mm-hmm. Like no one tried to punk De La Soul after, you know what I'm saying? Their second record. There's a yeah. lot of industry stories about them, like handling yeah. shit, but it's a shame that they had to even go through that. But that's what the industry is, yeah. you know, like they showed and what you just also pointed out is like and they were managed. They, they were able to drop four classic albums, become icons in the industry while never playing along with the industry. Facts. They never did what everybody else was doing to make a hit, to make it to the next record. And they still had one of the best four album runs that I will put up against any artist in any genre in music history. Yeah, I think easily their first four records. There's only a couple groups who've had a four album run like that. Mm-hmm. And I think theirs was, was, was up there amongst the best. Yeah. I mean, yeah. shoot. Like when you really think about it, a lot of the native tongues like had those two to three album yeah. You know, runs yeah. where like their first three, you know, two, three, four records were certified classic. Yes. Yes. You know, so having a crew that strong, man. Yes. Yeah. yeah, man. And yeah, that, that anti-materialism thing was like, it, it's been a key to their whole thing, but it's really just kind of like anti-industry. Yeah. You know, um, and we know this was before independence was being was cool or, or even a thing you could just go independent back then like like they could have right. and so within the industry you had to play the game differently and uh they played the game differently and they were very very successful showing that you know there is an audience who wants to hear that who don't want to hear the other stuff glorified right and so uh that's number six we'll take a break and we'll be right back right. Right. quick announcement Over the years, we've frequently been asked by the listeners of our show if we would ever open up our platform to the public for advertising. We've always been interested in doing it, but in the past, we never had the systems in place to make it work properly. I'm proud to announce that we are now officially accepting advertising from the public on Super Duty Tough Work. Meaning, if you are a business owner or an artist, and would like to create more awareness about your product, service, or release on our platform, we're now in a position to be able to do that. For more information, email us at superdutytoughwork at weightless.net. That's superdutytoughwork at weightless.net. Tell us a little bit about who you are, what you would like to promote, and we'll get back to you as soon as possible about whether it's a good fit and go from there. Thanks for your time. Back to the show. All right, folks, we are back. Super duty, tough work. Blueprint, logic. We here. Talking about the genius of De La Soul. The genius of De La Soul. We got two bullet points left. Hope you all have been enjoying this episode. You know, as it makes us appreciate their art and their legacy more you know you gotta get people they flowers sometimes while they can still smell them mm-hmm. and I hope that this is what this uh, turns into uh, so let's talk about the number seven trait that has uh, fueled the genius of De La Soul and to me that is their reinvention yes De La Soul was one of the only groups I know that can come out with a sound popularize it then kill it on their next album be successful, come back, kill that sound, say, ah, oh, we don't want to do that anymore. And then the next thing is successful. And they did that shit all over their career. Mm-hmm. When you, they were, were masters of reinvention. Uh, they started the whole thing with the Daisy Age, right? Mm-hmm. We got the Daisy Age, we got the medallions, we got the, the, the hippie thing going. You know what I mean? We got this poetic thing going. 
And then what they do in their second album, they said, you were tired of that shit. De La Soul is dead. And they had with this fucking daisies poured, uh, uh, tipped over broken vase of daisies on the album cover showing that, hey, we know what y'all think y'all getting. You're not getting that anymore. Mm -hmm. This is after going platinum and having a huge album. Yep. There's a story they talk about where when they explain the concept of their next record to the label, the label panicked. Scared. <laughs> they say, hey, so what's going on with your second record? You're, you're sophomore. How are you going to follow up this, this huge record? This three they say, oh, we're just going to kill that whole thing. We're not going to do that anymore. We're going to say De La Soul is dead. We're going to put a flower pot on the cover. It says the whole thing is dead. We're going to do a completely different sound. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to do none of that shit we did. Label's like, what the fuck are you doing? Know me, myself, and I? <laughs> no, no, no. None of that shit. No radio hits. <laughs> Sorry. You know, it, it kind of, uh, it, it's hard to do that as an artist. Mm -hmm. And you can do it, but to do it successfully is another thing, right? Then you look at like Balloon Mind State, which kind of like we talked about, it was kind of in between. Yeah. Super jazzy record, beautiful arrangements and just kind of go on and groovy and shit and then what they do the next album strip down to your yep. face raw as hell minimalistic stakes is high just taking on the whole fucking industry that's four different albums that sound completely fucking different yeah and and shit on the previous records like we're not doing that no more mm -hmm. so whatever you came before you're not getting it to me Daylight was masters of reinvention, even if you look onto their adaption into their last few records because they had issues with sampling to say, we're not going to sample anymore. Yep, all live. Yep, all live. We're going to get some musicians. We know what good music sounds like. We're getting some people to play. We're going to sample that, arrange that, and then we're going to create a record. Reinvention. You know, reinvention even goes as far as them saying, hey, man, look, um, we know that at this stage in our career, we should be looking for a label to sign us and support us. But we're going to adopt the model that a lot of these other artists are doing uh, who are not on major labels, which is Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. We're going to reinvent ourselves and make sure that we have a connection with fans. Because if you don't have that direct connection with fans, you can't get nowhere. You know, so they asked for what, 100,000 went to 500,000 for that record. Yep. On Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Just to do a record with no samples after everybody knows you for sampling. Yep. De La Soul is, is one of the, the most effective groups at reinventing themselves in the history of hip hop. And that Anonymous Nobody record was one of the best albums of that year, too. Yes. Because I think we talked about it on one of our, um, I think, I think I we think might we have did. talked about it on, on one of our reviews. Yeah. But, yep. Yeah, but that was one of the best records that year. You know, yeah. so they, knew, they know what they're doing. You know what I'm saying? They always have known what they're doing, with or without Prince Paul. Yes. They've always had their own identity and knew yep. what direction they wanted to go and always did it successfully. Yeah. And you know that what you just brought up is another time when they reinvented themselves mm -hmm. to establish such a sound with Prince Paul and then be like, sorry, man, we want to we want to produce our own record. We're going to yep. all we're going to do the beats for Stakes as High ourselves. Yep. You know, we're going to get one from Dilla. We're going to do the rest from all of ourselves. And. We believe we can make the record that fits what we do. And that yeah, caused tension. Yeah. Yeah. But it worked. Yeah. And then you go to Grind Date, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Where they have multiple, you know, more multiple producers. Then you yep. get Doom on the joint, the rock cocaine flow. And the rest is his. Like that yeah. made that record take off. Yes. Just that one joint. It and did. that was a Jake One beat. Yep. It did. Yeah. They were not afraid to do different things. You know, um, even you see a lot of artists, they become more conservative the longer that they go because they know what works. Right. We know this very well because we're artists. We have things in our catalog that fans love us for. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we know we need to be fucking with that shit to be successful. But we know if we don't do it, we could cut off the fucking water. Right. You know what I mean? They were never afraid of that. They knew what people loved them for. and were not afraid to kind of move around and do different things and reinvent themselves within that. That's number seven. 
Last bullet point coming up, folks. And this is industry navigation. Industry navigation. By this, I mean, this is something that we've seen in the, in the last 10 years from De La Soul, which is not even about their music per se, but it's about how they handle their career in the music industry that I think is very innovative. And something you alluded to earlier was how about maybe it was 10 years ago, eight to 10 years ago, Daylight, this was on the, the digital download side. Due to all the sampling issues, De La Soul's music was not on the popular down. It wasn't on iTunes. It wasn't on, you know what I mean? None of these MP3 sites. You looked on there and it's like, yo, there's a whole generation of people who aren't listening to De La Soul because it's not available in MP3. So what did De La Soul do? They realized that there was like a loophole. You had all the torrenting sites, uh, file sharing technology. Mm-hmm. And what did they do? They say, hey, look, man, we're going to let y'all get our whole catalog for free for one day. Yep. As much of it as you want. Yep. And in exchange for your email address. Yep. Since their album was in limbo between the owners of the samples and the label and everybody fighting, they were like, look, they didn't even technically, in a legal sense, which is why they didn't get sued, they didn't technically give us the record. Right. They just gave us a link to where the records already were. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in exchange for our email addresses. So they could keep up with us and know who they fans were. Brilliant. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. And that led to basically a De La Soul day 18 years ago. Yeah. I wrote about this on my blog like 18 years ago. Like, yo, this is incredibly smart of them. Mm -hmm. Because most artists who are on major labels don't know who their fans are. Right. They don't have any way to correspond. They can't just send out an email blast. Like, De La Soul probably got 500,000 million fucking email addresses. Doing that mind. Yeah, <laughs> they got mine, and and that is 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 crazy because when they got that, that's probably what played a good part in them being able to fund their mm-hmm. Kickstarter some years later. Yep, knowing how to how to contact their fans directly and tell their story and, and speak to them, as opposed to you get off a major label, you're in limbo, you don't know where you're where you can play, you don't know who to talk to, you don't know where your fans are, you don't know what they want. That that was brilliant, right? And then to think of after that happened, their, mu- their music went back into limbo again mm-hmm. on a streaming side. Because now the streaming is starting to pop up and their music's not there again. They go back and forth with Tommy Boy for the last 18 years. Can't reach an agreement. Get offered agreements that they didn't like. We're very public about we're not signing this. Just because these samples ain't been cleared don't mean we don't deserve no rights to our music. We can't make nothing off this shit. So they held out. Mm-hmm. what happens another big label buys the catalog from Tommy Boy all of a sudden the big label's like yo we're fans of Day Lives we want to make this work we're going to put the bread into getting these, this shit cleared we're going to put uh, getting this shit recreated and getting this catalog out period mm-hmm. yep. and, and they waited and, and they got the deal that they wanted and they got the music available to the public which is last week which is like another Day La Soul day we yep. had like two Day La Soul days in the last 10 years Yep. Most artists don't even get their flowers until they all gone. Right. They don't be around to smell them. Two times they've been able to pull this off and the people have rallied around them to try to get this catalog out. And in this past Friday, it finally hit streaming sites and people can finally enjoy De La Soul again. And to me, it's just a perfect example. Two examples now of their ability to navigate the music industry with integrity, but then also be very, very innovative. Yeah. It's, it was beautiful. It's been beautiful to watch over, you know, the years is how they've been able to move, even when they were signed and when they were putting, you know, their records out, how they were able to kind of chuck the finger at the industry in the process of being part of it. Yeah. And then once completely kind of removing themselves and moving at their own pace, once they got off the label and tried to, you know, started making their own stuff. It's just been fun, fun to watch and very inspiring to watch. You know, it's a, it's a lot of lessons in the De La Soul story. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and, and, and shit, another lesson is just like staying together as a group, mm-hmm. you know, and one of the only groups, one of the only groups that's still together from the 80s. Yes. Yeah. They don't hate each other. There ain't no public beef. Right. Uh, last week, uh, shout out to Zero Star. He sent me a story about. 
uh, Tretch and Vinny from Naughty by Nature. Tretch yeah. chasing Vinny around with a knife and shit. You know what I mean? Like these brothers can't even go play shows together. Yeah. We all saw the, the Tribe documentary with Q-Tip and Fife's Tension. Yeah. You know Fugees. what I mean? The Fugees. It's like, yo, all these classic groups, they can't even get on stage together no more. Right. To go, it's like to have a have a group is very hard. Mm-hmm. De La Soul was still brothers until the end. Yeah. Still brothers. You know what I'm saying? There's never been a an expose about these dudes hating each other. Yep. Doing WWF shit, talking reckless about each other in public. Or, it don't exist. Don't exist. You know? And I'm and sure I, I'm sure they had some issues. Oh, of course. I'm sure they have. You, you don't know what go thir- 40 years, 30, 40 years. <laughs> right. Without getting into an argument. Yeah, you're going to argue with your brother. You're going to have some, yeah. some shit with your brother. Like, that's, that's natural. Mm-hmm. That happens. Yeah, but it's like you work through it and you get past it. Shit, me and you've had some issues. Yes, yes and we here. <laughs> yeah, we still it's, here. It's been over 25 years, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. You're going yeah. to have some disagreements and some issues, and the next thing you know, it's like, you know what, man? That's my motherfucking brother, man. Yeah. I ain't never going to say nothing about this man in public or do anything like that. You know what I mean? And uh, that, to them, they deserve a lot of credit for that. Thanks. A lot of credit for that. And uh, that's it, folks. That is the genius of De La Soul. I hope you all appreciate this episode. I'm going to run these bullet points back real quick. Number one was their skits. Number two was their creative sampling. Number three, the rhyme patterns. Number four, fashion. Number five, their perspective. Number six, anti-materialism. Number seven, reinvention. And number eight, their industry navigation. I hope y'all got something out of this to all the De La Soul fans out there. I hope you are bumping those records this weekend and moving forward. I know I will be as I drive around in this truck, you know what I'm saying? Stealing these mm-hmm. people's money, you know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> with no mask on, mm-hmm. listening to De La Soul every day, you know? And, uh, you know, if you are participating in our 90-day challenge, stay strong. Yeah. Stay keep- strong. Keep tracking them calories, man. Keep keep doing that little workout. If you don't feel like doing the full workout, just bust 50 push-ups, 50 sit-ups. Where you go to bed, do something. That's it. And, uh, you know, the results will come from doing the right thing. And so we'll see you guys next week. Peace. Peace. Thank you for listening to Super Duty Tough Work. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Follow the podcast on SoundCloud. Peace. Shoot, I got styles already that's more complex that nobody know about. I mean, super duty tough work. Huh?